Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I'm Pat Iyer. My guest today is Karen Harmon, who has been around legal nurse consulting for a very long time and around obstetrical nursing for even longer than she's been involved with legal nurse consulting. She has 28 years of experience working in different aspects of labor and delivery and serves attorneys as an expert witness. Karen's also been involved with the legal nurse consulting community in her home base in San Diego, California, and is joining me today to talk about some of the common obstetrical emergencies. You, as a legal nurse consultant, could be asked to screen a case or assist an attorney with one of these three types of complications or emergencies. So Karen, let's get our our, uh, viewer tuned in to what are the topics that we're gonna cover today. Can you share with us the overview and welcome to the podcast. Of course. And thank you for inviting me. Most appreciated. Um, well, as as many of you know, or may not know, that obstetrics is um, one of the major financial loss leaders for many malpractice insurance companies and is one of the most litigious areas of both medicine and nursing. So there are many, many cases that I reviewed over the years. So I tried to focus in on what would be three topic areas that um, I seem to see more often than not. So the three topics that we're going to talk about today is shoulder dystocia, and that would be with an obvious brachial plexus injury, which may also involve neurological impairment. We're going to talk about delays in delivery um, specific to the the 30-minute rule, And then I'm going to talk about some fetal monitoring failures. All right. I always think about shoulder dystocia as being associated with very large babies. Is that always the case? Actually, not always the case. Uh, Shoulder dystocias are both um, unpredictable and not preventable. And yes, indeed, they can happen with larger babies, macrosomic babies, but interestingly, they can happen with very normal sized babies. So we always have to be prepared for a shoulder dystocia because you really don't know if it's going to happen. So you have to be prepared almost at every delivery for that potential. Could you take us through as an expert witness, you're involved in the analysis of these cases What are some of the things that you look at? And maybe they're the same things that you look at if you're behind the scenes consulting on this case as well. Well, first, just a a quick review, um, making sure we're all on the same page. When you have a shoulder dystocia, it's when the fetal head is delivered 
but then the anterior shoulder becomes impacted behind the symphysis pubis and which caused the delay of the delivery of the torso. So it is the interventions and maneuvers that occur at that time that potentially contribute to a brachial plexus injury. So how do I proceed in these reviews? I would say the first thing I always want to know, and not so much just with a shoulder dystocia case, but with any case that I'm reviewing is what are the specific allegations that are being brought forward? We know that, especially in the age of electronic medical records, what we would normally see as the medical record in the hospital, um, once that medical record, once you hit the print button, the amount of records that come out are very voluminous. So being able to know your specific allegations in a case is gonna enable you to align your focus as such so that your review is more time efficient and more specific to the allegations. When I know there is a shoulder dystocia case that I'm reviewing, the first thing that I do is I refer to the prenatal record. I want to review the prenatal record, not that I worked in an outpatient setting, but the prenatal record um, can give me some very specific risk factors that I'm looking for. Now, as I said earlier, there are risk factors for a shoulder dystocia, but shoulder dystocia is an unpredictable and um, unpreventable uh, obstetrical emergency. So one of the things that I look for is to identify if the provider has indeed identified prenatally, if the mom had any specific risk factors. So risk factors such as, um, did she have a previous shoulder dystocia? Once we have a previous shoulder dystocia, dystocia we're, our likelihood of having a repeat event is there. The next thing I want to look at is has there, is there, um, does mom have diabetes? And if she does have diabetes, how compliant has mom been to her diabetes? A non-compliant diabetic can grow bigger babies. Has the physician identified that we have a macrosomic baby? So maybe we do know that there is macrosomia present. Um, another risk factor might be if the mom is morbidly obese. So I look to see if risk factors were identified. The next thing I look at on the prenatal record is the fundal height in the gestational age assessments. Every time the mom goes in for her prenatal visits, a fundal height assessment is done by the provider. So tape measure comes out, we go from the pubic bone to the top of the fundus, top of the uterus, and that is um, recorded in centimeters. That centimeter should correlate to the gestational age. So if I present at 32 weeks, my fundal height should be approximately 32 centimeters. So what I'm going to look for is there is significant disparity between fundal height and gestational age. And I'm looking at maybe a three to four centimeter difference. So if that did happen, then I'm going to look to see if the physician made a referral for ultrasound. If I know mom is diabetic, I'm going to look at the prenatal record to see what kind of education was provided to mom as far as managing her diabetes. Was she sent to sweet success? Was she given additional education? Was she sent to a diabetic educator? Because all of that is going to play into um, size of the baby. 
So some of you might say, well, you know, I didn't work in the outpatient setting. So, you know, I'm not really familiar. Um, well, actually, if you're a legal nurse consultant working in OB, you are familiar with the prenatal record. But what I'm trying to get at is, yes, that's the medical piece. And um, we are opining on the nursing standard of care. So we, I review the prenatal record so that if I do identify any discrepancies or concerns, I can alert the attorney that I'm working with so he or she can then converse with their medical expert. I will tell you, we have to be very careful as, le as legal nurse consultants to ensure that we are only opining on the nursing standard of care. I know there are physicians out there that put themselves out there to opine on nursing care and in my opinion, that's, you know, everything wrong. So we want to prevent from going down that same rabbit hole and making sure that we're only opining on the nursing care. Um, after that, after I review the prenatal record, I want to make sure um, I then go to um, the medical record and create my non-opinionated timeline. So from the time of admission to the time of delivery. So I am going to review the medical record, create my own timeline, and I want to see if the nurse identified any risk factors that may develop from the intrapartal perspective. So do we have a, a slow first stage of labor? Do we have a prolonged second stage of labor? Do we have a failure of fetal descent? Has there been... Um, did it become an operative vaginal delivery? So is there a vacuum or forceps involved? All of those things can be red flags. So my expectation reviewing these records is that the nurse is going to recognize those potential red flags. And then her duty at that time is to ensure that she communicates those findings to the physician. Lastly, when we get to the point of delivery, and we're in the delivery room, patient is positioned, and physician calls out a shoulder dystocia. So what are my expectations of the nurse at that time? My expect expectations, number one, is I need to see documentation that the nurse called out for help. Um, she needs to call out to the nurse's station, or some hospitals have walkie-talkie systems, um, but the concern is I need to make sure I get one extra help in the delivery room. Number two, I need to make sure I get NICU involved or the PEDS team or the ALS team. I want them in the room. So I'm going to be looking at the medical record to see one, did the nurse call for help? Two, did she correctly position the patient in bed, making sure her bum is right at the edge of the bed? But I'm also going to see what time the call was placed for NICU and that NICU is at the delivery. Once all of those things are in place, um, the nurse needs to ensure she's documenting the time that the head was out. She needs to try to, I kind of laugh at this, you know, we need to remain calm in these emergencies. Not always easy to remain calm, and it's not usually easy to kind of extrapolate that from the medical record, but we need to be able to see evidence that the physician and the nurse are working in sync with each other. So the nurse's duty is to perform McRoberts maneuver. That should happen in every shoulder dystocia case. 
As far as suprapubic pressure, that would be a new a maneuver that would be directed by the physician for the nurse to do. So if she was so directed, then she needs to be the one documenting that that maneuver was indeed done. After those two maneuvers, if the delivery has not occurred, the maneuvers are now going to go internal and that's going to be the duty of the physician. So not our duty to document what internal maneuvers were done by the physician. That would be the physician's duty. Um, at that point, um, delivery occurs. So we need to have a head to body interval time. So document time head out, time baby out, and hand that baby off to the NICU as quickly as possible if it looks like there is any issues. You have brought up so many aspects of nursing performance that I hadn't considered. I have always viewed this as up to the nurse midwife or the obstetrician doing the delivery, but you're pointing out the role of the nurse as advocate and also assistant mm -hmm. during those, what I perceive as a non-OB nurse, probably panicky moments. It is. Let's get this baby out quickly. They can be very scary. Very scary. Phew. And speaking of timing, I know that another topic that you wanted to cover, and this brings up a lot of issues, is how quickly is there a recognition that the woman needs to be taken for an emergency section? How ready is that room and the staff in terms of preparing? And is there a delay in either the recognition or the room being available that affects the fetus's outcome? So I'd love to hear what your comments are and how you view these problems as a legal nurse consultant when you're analyzing cases. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. If you want to write well, read. Imagine deciding that you want to play the violin without ever listening to music. To me, it's just as difficult to imagine somebody wanting to write without being a reader. I'm Pat Iyer, the author of over 60 books. I am happiest when I have a book or a reading device in my hands. My love of reading and writing has enabled me to have a prosperous writing career that enhances my business and professional reputation. You might be thinking, but I read. I like blog posts and I keep up with newsletters and websites in my field. And if you could see how many emails I get every day. Yes, that's reading. The problem is that too often you're not reading good writing. Anyone can write a blog post or newsletter, and some of those people don't think that grammar or style are important. This results in the reader unknowingly absorbing bad writing habits. You need to read books and articles that someone has edited and proofread. You need to read books that authors care about. This will help you absorb some good writing habits, the kind that no good writer succeeds without having. Reading stimulates your imagination and it teaches you how good writers use words, develop ideas, and come to conclusions. And you'll discover a pleasure I've been enjoying all my life. Reading is good for you. So is writing. Take the first step 
in your reading and writing career by getting a copy of my book, Why Become a Better Writer Today, How Writing Skills Help You Thrive. Go to this link, patire.com forward slash books. Now let's return to the show. Well, when we're speaking specifically of a shoulder dystocia, shoulder dystocias are really going to be delivered vaginally. Um, If we were to have to go to the extreme end, and that would be a cephalic replacement, and that's something that the physician does, it's called the Zavanelli maneuver, where the baby is taken in reverse of the cardinal movements, replacing the baby back into the uterus, and then going for an emergency C-section, very, 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 very rare. Um, So really um, the focus is once the nurse has completed her duty in doing the McRoberts and possibly the suprapubic pressure, um, the remaining interventions and maneuvers are done by the physician. Um, So really we are just there to follow direction of any repositioning of the patient and doing whatever we can at the direction of the physician to facilitate that delivery. Sometimes the physician may call out for a page to go overhead in the hospital for another available OB to come in and assist in those internal maneuvers. But I would say in 99.9% of the cases, the delivery is ultimately occurring in the delivery room and not having to go to the operating room. But when we're trying to assess and determine whether the nurse did, you know, meet all those criteria for her responsibilities is one of the other things that I will do in this case, in many cases, is to inquire as to whether that particular hospital has a policy and procedure related specifically to shoulder dystocia. Because then within that policy and procedure, one, it should delineate specifically what the nurse's roles and responsibilities are, but it also might allude to um, specific checklists that need to be completed after delivery that you then can be looking for those records in the medical records. And it also may allude to um, if the hospital does any type of any type of emergency simulation training. So it kind of gives us a little bit um, better idea of the culture and the knowledge within that particular hospital just by reading and looking at policies and procedures specific to that topic that we're dealing with. And what has been your experience, Karen, with the outcome for the babies when shoulder dystocia is not handled well? What are the consequences and how well do these kids do in terms of gaining full use of their arm? Well, the cases that are brought forward in litigation are usually the cases where the the baby, the child has a very significant brachial plexus injury where there is um, damage to the nerves 
causing the child not to be able to have full function of the arm. So there's herbs palsy, there's Klumpke's palsies, there's a combination of two, which will prevent the child from being able to raise its arm over its head or have use of the hand. So a lot of times um, when you have a significant brachial plexus injury, there's a lot of surgeries that can take place to probably not gain full function that I've seen in, in my experience, but to regain some function. Um, then you have on top of the brachial plexus injury, if that shoulder dystocia lasted a significant significant period of time, um, there may also be a neurologic impairment. So then you kind of have a double whammy. And by neurologic, are you talking about sensory as well as motor? Um, uh, it could be to the extreme of an HIE injury. It could be an extreme neurological injury due to lack of oxygen at the time of delivery. And let's spell out HIE hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So you're going to be looking to at your core gases. And of course, you know, this is getting out of the, of the nursing realm, but the longer that baby is stuck, the perfusion to the baby is hindered or cut off. So the baby is not getting an adequate flow of um, oxygenated blood. Therefore you've got a hypoxic um, asphyxial injury. I know we focused on the maneuvers. How do the defense attorneys approach these cases? Um, well, they're, they're, they're going to be evaluating kind of like exactly what I just talked about. Has there been risk factors identified prenatally intrapartally. Um, we know the sequence of maneuvers that are done by the nurse, by the physician. Um, attorneys are going to be looking at the prenatal care that we talked about. So being familiar with some of the important publications from ACOG. So ACOG has practice bullets. ACOG is the professional organization for OBGYNs. So ACOG publishes committee opinions, practice bulletins, and there is one specifically talking about shoulder dystocia and macrosomia. So defense attorneys are going to be um, keyed into those documents to see if the physicians, um, you know, follow those. Um, they're going to look at the sequence of maneuvers they're going to look at those risk factors where they identified intrapartally, prenatally. So, you know, either side is really going to be looking at a lot of the same variables. And I know that this is a broad generalization, this question that I'm going to ask you. So much of what we do comes down to how well people charted at the time. Do you see in general, people's awareness about the fact that it's so imperative to document the maneuvers in particular, what happened in that delivery room, or is one of their defenses, well, we had to take care of the patient and then we had to focus on the baby, so we didn't go back and, and really thoroughly document what happened. 
that would be a problem. <laughs> yes, yes. Your first priority, of course, is always taking care of the patient. But whenever, I mean, at any time, and I'm not just talking just with an obstetrical emergency, but after an obstetrical emergency, one, there may be a debriefing on the unit. Um, but the bottom line is you need to document and document thoroughly what you saw, what you did. Um, the focus needs to be on what you did. You don't want to get into the specifics of what the physician did. You can say in general, internal maneuvers were, were completed, but it would be the physician's duty to document the specifics, what he or she did. But documentation, and I know it's so frustrating for nurses because there's so much documentation now, but the only thing that you're going to have to rely on if litigation comes down the line in a few years is what you did document. It is critical to document what you did um, and also to ensure that the term or words fundal pressure never present itself in the medical record as it relates to a shoulder dystocia because fundal pressure would be the one maneuver that would not be defense defensible in the case of a shoulder dystocia. So nurses do need to take the time and ensure the maneuvers they did were documented. I reviewed a case once where, um, I knew that the nurse did suprapubic pressure, but she did not document it. Thank goodness the doctor actually documented in her delivery note that the nurse was directed and did perform suprapubic pressure. So the doctor in that situation kind of covered for the nurse, which was great. But I know no matter how tired you are, no matter how um, stressed you are with that obstetrical emergency, you have to document everything that you did so that your care. So I, as if I'm defending you and I'm reviewing this case, I need to have, I can't surmise what happened. I need to be able to rely on the medical record to defend what you did by following the standard of care in a critical situation, such as a shoulder dystocia. So you need to document. And going back, it's, I think, probably one of my last questions to you, going back to what you just said about the difference between suprapubic and fundal pressure. That may be a nuance that will fly right by the non-OB nurse who's listening to this. Can you explain the difference between those two and the implications? I'm sorry. I cut out a second. The difference between? The suprapubic pressure and fundal pressure. Superpubic pressure is pressure exerted by the nurse using her fist or her hand right above the suprapubic bone, because that is where the anterior shoulder is going to become lodged or impacted behind. So the idea behind suprapubic pressure is you're pushing down and at a specific angle based on the positioning of the fetal head to help and hopefully dislodge that anterior shoulder so it slips under the pubic bone and subsequently affects delivery. Fundal pressure is where pressure is exerted at the top of the uterus pushing down. So if I am pushing down at the top of the uterus, 
when a shoulder dystocia has been diagnosed, I am going to further impact that anterior shoulder and make matters worse. So there's nowhere in the literature that supports the use of fundal pressure. And if it was utilized, you know, shame on you, but then the case can essentially become undefensible. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand the mechanisms of this injury, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In leaving our listener with one conclusion or one tip when it comes to analyzing shoulder dystocia cases, what would you say? Well, you yourself as the legal nurse consultant that is reviewing that case needs to have a very strong knowledge of what shoulder dystocia is, when it can occur, what risk factors are present, um, what was recognized from the prenatal standpoint, what was recognized during the course of labor, what occurred at the time of delivery. I also like to look at um, during the course of labor, any communication or handoffs that occurred. You know, was there something recognized in the early stage of labor? And then let's say this labor went through three shifts of nurses. So handoffs we know can be very dangerous times where critical information maybe is not communicated or a situation where, um, you know, the primary physician wasn't the one calling in the patient and talking to that nurse at the time of admission, you know, him or her being fully aware of this patient. Um, maybe it was um, the physician on call when the patient presented. So, you know, there's so many different nuances that you want to evaluate to create the big picture in a shoulder dystocia case. But I think most important is you need to be aware of exactly what it is, your risk factors, what are the maneuvers, how are they done? If there was photos and videos, are you able to evaluate that and know that they were done correctly by the nurses? Um, and then just trying to gain some knowledge through the attorney as far as the culture of the hospital and um, any additional training that um, the nurses have undertaken at the hospital. That's very helpful as well. Those are wonderful pointers, Karen. And I know that our listener is going to want to be able to connect with you, perhaps to review a obstetrical case or serve as an expert. What would be the best way for that connection to take place? Well, I don't have a website. I never have. So the best way to get a hold of me would be my email. And that is Karen Harmon, medlegal at yahoo.com, all one word. So my name is spelled K-A-R-E-N-H-A-R-M-O-N-M-E-D, legal, Karen Harmon, medlegal at yahoo.com. It sounds like you have spelled out your name once or twice before there, Karen. Well, sorry we didn't get to the other um, high-risk scenarios, but maybe on another podcast, I will, will share those with you. We'll definitely invite you back. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast. Thank you. And for you who's watching this, I wanted to make sure you know that we have a mobile app called Expert Edu, where you can download and you can view podcasts, blogs, short videos, 
uh, tips, a variety of content specifically related to being a legal nurse consultant. You can get my app, Expert Edu, at the Apple Store for the App Store or in Google Play if you have an Android. And be sure to come back next week or click on down below for the next show of Legal Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Hello, my name is Pat Iyer, and coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast is a cardiac care nurse practitioner, Erin Getz. She is, in addition, a legal nurse consultant who provides support to people who are investigating a variety of cases, and her specialty is working with patients with cardiomyopathy, with arrhythmias, in her day-to-day -day job, she is managing these patients in the clinic. Erin, in our podcast, what were some of the topics that we covered? So, hi, Pat. Uh, we talked about my role as a nurse practitioner working outpatient in the cardiology clinic. Uh, we talked about, you know, failure to diagnose uh, cardiomyopathies, heart problems, arrhythmias, and we also address some of the liabilities, such as early hospital discharge. And we also address some of the defenses that come along with the territory of working in cardiac care. If you're handling a case involving cardiomyopathy, irregular heartbeats, um, anything that fits within the realm of cardiac care, be sure to keep Aaron in mind. Watch your podcast. You'll get some tips about some of the traps that are in the care of cardiac patients, particularly the complexity of these cases. I'm Pat Iyer, and we've been talking to Erin Getz, G-E-T-Z. Be sure you see her podcast. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.